People think that pipes grow in their homes, but they sure as hell don't. Look at my knees! Look at my knees! You're entering a cosmic void. Welcome to A Cosmic Void. I'm Biggs. So today we are going to cover Eraserhead by David Lynch. This was a movie that I was unfamiliar with until a couple of months ago outside of hearing about it because it's such a weird movie. It's definitely got a reputation. David Lynch is a guy I've seen a few of his movies. I absolutely love The Elephant Man. It's probably in my top 20 movies, which was his follow-up to this. Eraserhead I watched because we were going to have Tom Smith on the show, and now that he's not coming on the show, uh, I just figured I'd get my notes out of the way and just go ahead and do this episode anyway. I think a key to knowing about David Lynch is to know that he started out as a painter, and I think that that informs his filmography. A lot of directors, they start out wanting to direct movies. David Lynch started out as a painter and made surreal things, and you can definitely see that in his work. So when I talk about this, I'm going to try and take a lot of the symbology that's in the movie and unravel it. I could be wrong because, as I said, it's it's a subjective art, but I'm going to give it my best shot as to what I think is going on. There are many weird interpretations of this movie, so... Hang on, you're in for my version of it. So let's start with the premise. A man impregnates a woman and is considering an affair as his mutant baby cries all night long. You're entering the void. The film starts with a man named Henry Spencer hovering in space. A rocky planet visible above his head hovers behind him. On the rocky planet's desolate surface, there's an overhead view of a building with a large hole in the roof. In the building, sitting by a window with broken glass, there's a man in the planet who pulls levers to control Henry's functions. Henry's mouth opens and a spermatozoon slides its way out, then rests erect on Henry's side. The man in the planet pulls several more levers and launches the sperm into a water hole. Some time passes and a creature is born in the depths of the blackness, rising to the surface. So I think with this, the planet is his head, what's going on inside his mind. I think the man in the planet is his biology. And I think that the water hole represents a vagina and the creature is a child. So basically, this is a movie that's about him having a child, but it's just steeped in all this weird symbology. Once again, the next scene starts with Henry looking at the camera. He then proceeds to walk home to his apartment through a slum in an industrial wasteland carrying a small brown paper bag. Henry stumbles past factories with heavy machinery roaring and tripping in a mud puddle. There is carnival music heard in the distance, but there are no people or automobiles anywhere. The sound of a steam whistle as well as a horn of a cargo ship are heard among the loud sounds of machinery. So I think the tripping in the mud puddle represents Henry impregnating a woman based off of all the stuff we saw before. I think that this hole with water, 
that does seem to represent sex. He had an accident. He got somebody pregnant. So that's basically what it's for. The industrial stuff everywhere, this is a mainstay in David Lynch movies. And I think that this industrial stuff just kind of represents the city and how people can kind of get lost in the city, which explains why he's so lonely when he's walking around. Because if you've ever been in a big city and you don't know anybody, it is incredibly lonely. Obviously, I talked about that about two weeks ago in the Seven podcast. That definitely applies here. I think that's a leitmotif that David Lynch has He spent a little bit of time in Philadelphia, and it was just really, really hard on him. And that was when he came up with the idea for this movie. So I think you can definitely connect the two things in this particular case. When Henry gets to the lobby, he checks the mail and finds there is none. He then takes his apartment up to room 26. When he gets inside, the beautiful girl across the hall who lives in room 27 informs him that Mary X called from the payphone in the hallway and invited him to dinner. There used to be a thing called payphones, kids, and you have to use them all the time because we didn't have cell phones. While in the apartment, Henry turns on some lights, sets down the brown paper bag containing paper wrap groceries, puts on some jazz on a record player, takes off his shoes, puts one of his socks on the radiator since it was wet from stepping in the puddle while walking home. While sitting on his bed, he then stares at the hissing radiator. We see that there are electrical wires from the radiator. He glances out at the only window in his one-room apartment, which has a view of a brick wall and another building across the alley. In the background, there's a small picture of a mushroom cloud. He then throws a stone in the pot of water in his dresser and looks at a torn picture of Mary. So I think in this, the radiator represents desperation. Whenever he's feeling very lonely, he seems to stare at this radiator. I think that the window facing the brick wall represents his feeling trapped. And I think that the mushroom cloud represents his old life being blown apart. I've seen this multiple times now. So when you rewatch it, you can pull apart a lot of these things. It's a lot of metaphors that would be pretty hard to get on the first time. Although I think that that facing the brick wall representing being trapped, I think that's an easy one to do. That is just a depressing image when you see a window and it's staring off into another building, right? Like, just awful. It's not even a window to another building. It's just brick. It's It might as well be wall. Uh, the torn picture of Mary could be that he damaged her by getting her pregnant. I also think that that the wires around the radiator, I think that's also kind of representing the city and then the radiator being loneliness. I think anytime we see these electrical things or this industrial sound, It's really oppressive over the movie, and I do think it's just supposed to represent the city. That evening after dark, Henry walks over to Mary's house through the industrial wasteland and through a railroad yard to meet her family and have dinner. Before he goes in, they mention Henry and Mary's strained relationship. While Henry is talking with Mrs. X in the living room, it's revealed that Henry works as a printer in LaPel's factory, but is on vacation. Henry meeting the family is portrayed as very awkward throughout the scene. While Henry and Mary wait in the living room, Mary's father works on cooking artificial chickens baking in the oven while Mary's mother fixes a salad. The grandmother sits motionless in the kitchen. The family is attempting to eat the artificial chickens and salad, but everything goes wrong when the chickens start twitching and bleeding when Henry tries to carve them. After dinner, Mrs. X interrogates Henry about whether or not he had premarital sex with her. He confirms that they did, and it's revealed that Mary has a deformed, premature baby. Mrs. X orders that they get married as soon as possible, 
and pick up the baby from the hospital. So there's a lot going on in the scene, and it is maybe the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a film. The father's vacation, I think, is him representing that he checked out mentally in the life of his family. I think the chicken shows how his family went wrong because of his mental absence. I also think that Henry inherited this mess, and so now he makes a mess when he's carving the chicken. The grandmother sitting motionless in the in the kitchen, to me, that feels a lot like the futility of life, right? Like you go through this whole thing, and then at the end, you're just kind of staring and being ignored, and you're not doing anything at all. It's just a really depressing look at the end of your life. The next scene cuts to sometime later after they get married and get the mutated alien baby home. Henry goes down to the lobby and checks the mail to find a small worm in a stylish black box. Henry hides this from Mary in his pocket at first, and then later in the cupboard next to the bed. He gets home and stares at the radiator again, this time more seriously. So I think the worm represents his thoughts of infidelity. He's been seeing the girl from the room across the hall. And every time he sees her, you can tell that there's sexual thoughts going on in his head, and he's trying to hide it from her in his pocket and then kind of puts it in that cupboard. So I really do think that represents his want for an affair to like step out to do something bad, right? Henry and Mary try to sleep, but the baby cries continuously. The sound of a raging thunderstorm is heard from outside, as well as sounds of more factory machinery and rumbles of a freight train. Mary can't stand it and tells Henry that she's going home, leaving Henry to deal with the baby. The beautiful girl across the hall is seen returning to her apartment in a disheveled state after an apparently bad date. Yeah, it's interesting the soundscape in this movie because they do use a little bit of music, but mostly they just use these oppressive sounds and they just keep going and going and going. And the machinery especially, it's just low enough where you don't always know it, but it's kind of uh, irritant as you're watching it. And then when you add in the freight train and, of course, the baby crying. I mean, when you can't make a baby happy, it is just one of the most frustrating things because all you can do is just try and figure out what it wants. But that's no guarantee that the baby's going to stop crying. So it's just incredibly frustrating. And I think they're really showing parenthood with this and how frustrating it can be. Over the next couple of days, Henry has trouble sleeping and hears the baby stop crying. He gets out of bed to check its temperature, and after the temperature reads fine, he looks back at the baby, seeing it's covered in sores and apparently sick. After he sets up a vaporizer, the beautiful girl across the hall comes over and seduces him, and they literally sink into the bed. The girl sees the mutated baby nearby crying. So the baby getting sores after Henry is contemplating seeing the beautiful girl across the hall represents that an affair is going to hurt the child. I think falling into the bed once again represents intercourse, right? Like before, he trips in the mud puddle that's supposed to be pregnancy. So once again, he's getting into sex by falling into this. The girl seeing the baby crying made her recoil in a way that would represent her realizing he has a family and she's helping tear them apart. A lady in the radiator appears on a stage singing In Heaven Everything is Fine while mutated worms fall from the ceiling and she steps on them. Henry goes on stage and a dead tree and some dirt is wheeled out, which makes him appear uneasy and he steps to the side of the stage where he's agitated. As he plays with a railing staring off into space, his head pops off and a crying mutated baby takes its place. 
The head forms a pool of blood and eventually falls into it, reappearing out of the sky and landing in an alley near an industrial wasteland. Once again, he had that seed before that he was hiding that I think is his idea of the affair. So I think that's what that tree is, is it's finally like bloomed into this tree, but now the tree's dead, right? Because the affair is over and he feels awful about it, which is why I think he feels uneasy. I think the lady in the radiator is hope in the face of despair. The mutated worms are obviously sperm. And I think that the baby head replacing them means that a child has gotten into his head and consumed him. A little boy sees Henry's severed head on the ground and takes it away with him to an eraser factory. When the boy arrives, Paul, a mechanic working at the front counter, buzzes his ill-tempered boss to the front, where the boss takes the little boy with Henry's severed head through another door and to a pencil machine operator in another back room where Henry's head is made into an eraser for pencils. So this is really fucking weird. Uh, In a very weird movie, it's probably the weirdest scene I think that the head represents his child consuming him and being made into erasers will represent him learning to forget or ignore the baby. Upon waking from the nightmare, Henry hears something outside his apartment. He then sees the beautiful girl across the hall being intimate with a man named Mr. Roundheels. When he gets back inside his apartment, the baby makes strange cackling noises as though it's laughing at Henry. Henry appears agitated, moves over to the baby, and begins cutting off its bandages, covering its body, causing the baby to breathe heavily. To Henry's horror, the baby's body splits open as if it was too fragile or Henry had cut into it. Henry decides to stab into the baby's heart with scissors and collapses on the other side of the room. The baby's innards flow across electrical wires and then produce sparks and short-circuit the lights. He sees the baby's head hovering above a very long neck, as the lights flicker in and out, and the baby's head becomes gigantic, engulfing the camera. So I think that the upset girl across the hall leaving him, he feels like it's the child's fault, which is why it's laughing at him, right? Like the baby being there caused the affair to fall apart, and so he feels resentment towards the baby, and so I think that's what that is supposed to be. The bandages being removed represents that Henry no longer cares for his child's well-being, and cutting into it represents Henry no longer supporting the child in any fashion. The man on the planet is seen pulling a lever and apparently being electrocuted. In the final shot, we see Henry standing in some kind of white afterlife and embracing the woman in the radiator. So I think that this is plain and simple. He's destroyed his life, and now he's holding on to hope in the ruins. So let's talk about the themes. I think there's a fear of intimacy as well as fatherhood running through this movie. Spencer is dating Mary X, who he doesn't seem to know very well. He impregnates her. She moves in and she can't handle the baby crying. Spencer starts to have fantasies of a woman in the radiator. He decides to have an affair with the woman across the hall after Mary X leaves. The baby immediately gets sick when he goes to leave. He winds up having the affair, but the woman gives a horrified look when she sees the baby. The woman across the hall becomes intimate with another man. Eventually, Spencer kills his child, leaving him alone with this fantasy of the woman in the radiator. Right? Like, it's just a fear of intimacy. Every time he gets close to something, it pushes him away or something happens. And I just think it's straight up a fear of fatherhood. I mean, the kid being sick, that whole thing just... If you're a parent, I don't know how you see that and not have it really ring out to you. So the movie behind the movie, David Lynch made the film while taking classes at the AFI. 
They funded it at first. It wound up taking four years to complete. During the last year, Lynch was not on the campus anymore, and he had to film off campus and find independent funding from Jack Fisk and Sissy Spacek to finish it. His daughter has said that being born with club feet and having many surgeries to fix it was the inspiration for the movie. And the projectionist who played the dailies for Lynch was blindfolded because he didn't want to give away how the baby prop worked. It's a secret that he kept to this day. So is the title set in the movie? No, no, it's not. I think a razor head is just talking about that pencil scene with the head, but it's definitely not set in the movie. Does it end at the right moment? I guess. I mean, if it's a metaphorical death of the baby, I guess it does end at the right moment. If it's a literal death of the baby, ooh, that's pretty fucked up. I could have done without that. So it's just all in how you interpret it, I suppose, as everything else in this movie. Does the story continue? If it's not a dream, he may go to jail for murdering his child. But it really looks like he might just get a cruelty to animals charge. So (laughs) there you go. Because that thing is, they even question whether it's human when they're looking at it. Uh, The ACV MVP is going to go with the baby. It's super creepy. Uh, it acts as a conscious for him. It acts as an antagonist. It is an irritant, keeping them up all night. It's And it's just so weird looking. It almost is like a Muppet, but with a sinister edge to it. I really, really like the baby. It's fucked up, and it's fantastic. So the reception, it was released for midnight shows over the course of three years. It wound up making $7 million off a $10,000 budget. That's 700 times its budget because it was so cheap. Um, I don't really have any reviews to do for this. It seems like all the reviews I could track down were written way after the fact. And I just don't really want to dive into ones that are recontextualizing a movie for whatever time that the review is written in. I would rather get the ones that came out right when it was there. So that is why I don't have a reception written. I mean, the movie was a weird midnight movie that just kept going out. I think when it first came out, it definitely didn't make money, but they realized there was potential in it being a midnight movie. So it just kept making the rounds in theaters that would do midnight movies for years. And midnight movies are like often low-budget horror movies or just like really crazy movies, foreign films. It's like stuff that you wouldn't normally see at a movie theater. Grindhousey kind of stuff is often at a midnight movie. So that's really how it wound up being a success. So influences on the movie, there's The Metamorphosis by Kafka. So this was a book that Kafka wrote, a short story, that is about this guy who wakes up and he becomes some kind of vermin. And his family is absolutely repulsed by it. And they're feeding it at first, but at a certain point, he can't provide for his family. He can't do anything for him. So they stop feeding him. They eventually let him starve to death within the room. And it's just super dark. It's really, really dark. But considering the material that it's covering over a potential baby murder, I think that this is a good comp for it. Also, The Nose by Gagol. This is where a government official wakes up and his nose has disappeared. It goes on to have a life of its own and rose through the ranks above him. I think you can kind of see that in the way that the baby is this extension of him, but then kind of almost controls him at a certain point. 
and he feels this jealousy and anger towards the baby. And so I think that's how he got influenced by the nose. So what did it influence? So Seven, which we just covered, and Barton Fink both constantly used low-level background noise to create an unnerving feeling that was pioneered in this movie. Like I said, it's just oppressive. It's just there constantly. It's this low drone that will make you feel incredibly uneasy over time. And you start to get used to it. And then when you notice it again, it just bothers you again. It's definitely something that's been used in a lot of other movies. Uh, the legacy of this movie popularized surrealism in American movies. It can't be understated. You would see this in a lot of French films. You know, all kinds of things, but you wouldn't really see it too much in American films. And then when he came out with this movie, the entire thing is surreal. I was looking at plot synopsis of this, and people were trying to say it's like a post-apocalyptic nuclear situation and things like that. And it's because people are trying to literalize it. And this is clearly not a literal movie, as I don't think any of David Lynch's things are literal. It's like the painting thing I said. He's making things that make you feel, and you're drawing your interpretation. And I'm pretty sure he has an interpretation. But I also think he has that painter mentality where it's like, let the people think what they want to think when they're looking at it, right? Like, I don't have to be there standing by it, explaining it. I would rather people draw their own conclusions from it. So other source material. There is this great video on YouTube, which was an extra on an Eraserhead box set called Eraserhead Stories 2001. And so this is an hour and a half long thing with David Lynch. He's smoking a cigarette and he's in front of a microphone, much like the one that I'm using right now. Think of your old 30s style mics that hang down or that are on a stand that you would see like a rock and roller sing out of or a blues musician or something like that. And he's talking in it and he's telling all these stories. And at one point, he goes to talk to somebody on the phone and they just cut to like an answering machine where they have them talking through the answering machine. And <laughs> they don't even like take the money to like find the person. And you'll occasionally see his reaction shots, but it's just like these two shots that they alternate between. And David Lynch is just such a weird dude. He has these stories about the movie, but it really, you're not going to learn anything about the movie by listening to it. It's just more about what he was doing in the time that the movie was made and right before the movie is made. So he'll say stuff like, so I would be sleeping in the room that we were recording in because homeless people would come in there and they would try and camp. And so I had to keep it clear. So I would have the set nail me in there so that nobody could get through. And then I would sleep in complete darkness for eight hours. And then they'd come and they'd take me to this coffee shop, which was the height of my day. And I would get this cup of coffee and I would get a piece of pie. And then at a certain point, I realized that the same pie was at a grocery store. It was the exact same, but it was the same price for one pie that it was for a slice. So after that point, I would buy the pie at the grocery store and then I'd wrap up a slice into a paper towel and I'd go into the coffee shop and order my coffee, but then I would secretly eat the pie. And you can imagine how exciting that is. Like he's just a fucking weirdo. He's a weirdo and it should be watched because it's very entertaining to see how weird he is. So I highly recommend that. 
I know this is a short podcast. I wish I had more for you, but it's just hard without bouncing off of somebody else. I'm just kind of clearing out the attic of stuff that I've prepared earlier. And then after this, it's going to be guests. So it's going to be a lot of people that are picking their movies and a wide variety of movies after this. A Cosmic Void is hosted and produced by Alex Small. It was created by Alex Small and Jeremiah Perez. The theme song was written and produced by Tom Smith. Follow me, the show, and the whole podcasting network at Instagram at NSF underscore network or on Facebook at facebook.com slash not safe for network. Also follow me on Letterboxd under Alex Big Small and join me next week when I'll be talking about Army of Darkness. Subscribe to all the podcasts on our network. Season 3 of Movies with Wrestlers has Eric and Connor answering the question on everyone's mind. Who's better, The Rock or John Cena? Every week, a cosmic void has Jeremiah and Biggs deconstructing influential movies. Not Safe for Network examines the zeitgeist through rabbit holes, deep dives, interviews, and pop culture battles weekly. And if you need some classic TV talk, catch up on the previous three seasons of In Syndication.